From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's estimated that 850 million people worldwide have kidney disease, and it's a big problem right here in the U.S. as well, affecting more than 30 million Americans. To raise awareness, March is National Kidney Month, and March 14th is World Kidney Day. On today's program, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert about kidney disease and get some tips on how to keep our kidneys healthy. Also on the program, we'll learn why fluoride varnish may now be part of a well-child visit to the pediatrician. And are you headed out on spring break? We'll find out how to protect yourself from the sun. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, did you realize that it is National Kidney Month? No idea. But you've been around long enough to know that it's probably a good idea for all of us to give our kidneys a second thought and a well-deserved checkup. Attention to the kidneys is always a good thing, yes. Well, you're right. There aren't too many organs that are in your body that are more important than your kidneys. Actually, you can't live without your kidneys. You can live with one, but you can't live with none. Well, I guess you can live without your kidneys, <laughs> with no kidneys, but it's it's pretty difficult. Your kidneys are pretty amazing. They filter over 50 gallons of blood every day. They regulate blood pressure. They get rid of whatever your body doesn't need, toxins in your body. They're sort of the the garbage collector of the body. They produce an active form of of vitamin D, and they control the production of red blood cells. And I'm sure I missed something. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, they're also prone to disease. One in three Americans is at risk for kidney disease due to diabetes, high blood pressure, or a family history of kidney failure. There are more than 30 million Americans who already have kidney disease, and most don't even know it. It's time to focus on the kidneys. Joining us in studio is a Mayo Clinic kidney specialist, Dr. Laden Zand. Welcome to the program, Dr. Zand. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you as well. Dr. Laden Zand, nice to have you. You have a little bit of an accent. I I can tell you're not from (laughs) Iowa. I'm not, yes. <laughs> Where are you from? Originally Persian. Persian. Yeah. And then how did you end up at the Mayo Clinic? Well, I came to Canada for my training for undergraduate and for medical school, and then I decided to come to Mayo Clinic for my residency training, and then I stayed on for my nephrology fellowship, and then on staff now for the last four to five years. So you're a, a kidney expert. Well, what got you interested in working with kidneys? Um, it actually started in medical school. I was fascinated by the pathophysiology of kidney disease in general. And um, after I got a chance to work with patients, I found it very rewarding. I specialize in a specific type of kidney disease, which is the inflammatory conditions in the kidney called glomerulonephritis. And um, I find that very satisfying. These are patients with acute kidney issues that you can help and uh, has been very gratifying. You know, it almost sounds like there is an epidemic of kidney disease, not in the United States, but not just in the United States, but the but the world. 30 million people in this country have kidney disease, and most don't know it. That's absolutely correct. Part of that is because um, certain diseases, such as diabetes and hypertension, increase your risk of developing kidney disease, and uh, in addition to obesity, and it seems that obesity and diabetes have been on the rise, and that may be partly because of the reason to see more prevalence of kidney disease. First of all, why do we have two kidneys? (laughs) That's an excellent question. You know, I think that's sort of the nature's way. You're born with more function than you need. And the thought is that perhaps if you had an injury down the line, um, that you have enough reserve to be able to survive that injury. Uh, But in adults, you most 
should be able to live with one kidney. And I always think of it's a good way to be able to donate a kidney if you're healthy enough. Um, uh, but majority of the times, if you have a disease in the kidney, it does affect both. Rare situations, you may have it in one kidney, but usually in both kidneys are affected. And if you do donate a kidney, isn't it true that it does not shorten your life expectancy? So you can easily live with one as long as it's healthy. That's absolutely correct. You usually go through a very thorough evaluation for the transplantation to be healthy enough to donate. But if you do meet the criteria that you're healthy, no other health issues, donating one does not shorten your lifespan. You mentioned a couple of the risk factors, diabetes and and obesity, um, high blood pressure being another one. But uh, how do those diseases affect the kidneys? Um, the diabetes itself has been, um, I would say, is one of the most common um, uh, causes to affect the kidneys, and that has to do with uh, damage to the lining of the blood vessels in the kidney, so the endothelial cells, as we call them, and it has to do with the elevated blood sugars, um, and that usually ends up having consequences um, um, that lead to kidney disease. Um, you may notice that you're, when you're born, your kidneys are made of a couple of millions of little tiny filters that we call nephron. And usually if you start losing some of these nephrons, that adds extra pressure on the remaining units. And uh, over time, that may lead to scarring, uh, which ends up being sort of the final pathway for regardless of what the cause of the kidney disease was in the first place. And then obesity is sort of an indirect risk factor in that obesity a lot of people who are obese have diabetes, and it's really the diabetes that affects the blood vessels and the blood flow to the kidneys. Um, so that's correct. That is one mechanism by which obesity causes kidney disease. But there is actually growing evidence that obesity alone in the absence of diabetes or hypertension can cause kidney disease. And there's really? this new terminology they call, uh, call obesity-related kidney disease. And I always think of that your kidneys are made uh, for ideal body weight. And if your weight is above um, what's kind of considered ideal, that increases the pressure on the kidney or the work on the kidney. And over time, you may wear these tiny little filters or nephrons out, and that um, increases your risk of kidney disease. Because if you're bigger, you have more stuff to filter, so your kidneys have to work harder. That's exactly correct. Obesity in and of itself is a a risk factor for kidney disease. Correct, yes. And high blood pressure. Talk a little bit about that. So high blood pressure has uh, always been considered a risk uh, for kidney disease, but a lot of times there has been this argument in the uh, nephrology community of chicken or egg because the kidney, if you have kidney disease, you would also be at high risk of developing high blood pressure because the kidney's job is to get rid of salt and water. And so whether hypertension alone on itself um, develops kidney disease or is there underlying kidney disease that subsequently increases the blood pressure and that, you know, uh, results in progression of kidney disease has been debated. But um, I always think of hypertension more in the category of vascular disease. So if you have history of smoking, high cholesterol, that again results in damage to the lining of the blood vessels, increases stiffening of your arteries, uh, decreased blood flow to the kidney and scarring in the kidney and kidney disease. So in your opinion, the blood high blood pressure is the culprit not the kidney, but you're a kidney doctor. (laughs) (laughs) If there's uh, 30 million Americans that have kidney disease and so many of us don't know it, Mm -hmm. what are some of the symptoms that you have kidney disease? That's what makes diagnosing kidney disease very difficult. I would say majority of the times you would be asymptomatic, meaning that you will not have any symptoms of kidney disease until you have lost a fair amount of your function. Um, usually by the time you develop the symptoms, your kidney disease is probably pretty advanced. And that's partly because your kidney is able to 
compensate pretty effectively till late stages. But usually um, some of the um, signs and symptoms include one of the main ones is um, evidence of fluid retention. So it would be swelling in the legs, sometimes would be swelling in the face, difficulty breathing. These are all signs that you're retaining fluid that your kidney is not able to get rid of. Other ones would include um, evidence of toxins accumulating in your body, and that could be somewhat nonspecific, but could be decreased appetite, difficulty sleeping, um, difficulty concentrating, um, sometimes uh, itchiness of your skin, mm-hmm. and these are all results of the toxins uh, building up. So if the symptoms don't come until it's almost too late mm-hmm. to save your kidneys, should you be screened? Should the kidneys be screened in screening tests? I think if you're a considered at risk population, you definitely should be screened. For general population, it's not advised necessarily, but definitely if you have a diagnosis of diabetes, if you have a diagnosis of hypertension, you are overweight, if you have family history of kidney disease, you definitely need to be screened. Um, so, and also certain ethnicities are at higher risk. So, for example, African Americans are higher risk, uh, American Indians are higher risk. And uh, so if you all fall in that higher risk category, you should be screened, yes. Are there any uh, changes in your urine that might suggest you have a kidney problem? Yes, yes. So um, uh, bubbles or foam, oh. foaminess of the urine is usually a sign that you're leaking protein, usually actually a fair amount of protein to see the foaminess. Um, sometimes dark urine um, may be something you may see um, uh, that may be a sign that you know there's blood in the urine. Um, uh, but changes in your, um, and sometimes also overnight, if you get up to go to the bathroom frequently, sometimes you may see that in patients with kidney disease because of the fluid retention, and then you may have to get up more often overnight. So those are nonspecific, but yeah, related. There are a, a few symptoms, yes. but the best thing, if you have one of the uh, risk factors, you ought to get screened for kidney exactly, disease. Exactly, correct. All right, and we know those risk factors are diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and a family history of kidney disease. Yes. Now tell us what happens if your kidneys completely fail. What what are your options? So we consider that end-stage renal disease, and if that happens, usually um, we consider three choices moving forward. One would be option of kidney transplantation. Um, another would be option of dialysis and the different modalities of dialysis. And the last option would be what's considered medical management and not pursuing either dialysis or transplant and just continuing with me- medical care. So uh, let's talk about dialysis because I, I think there are two types of uh, dialysis. It's difficult for anybody to, to go through this, but talk first about peritoneal dialysis mm-hmm. and then uh, hemo. Sure, yeah. So the peritoneal and hemodialysis are the two main modalities. The peritoneal dialysis is a method where you put um, fluid inside your abdomen and your lining of your abdomen essentially works like a filter where it exchanges uh, the toxins essentially from your blood come into that fluid, and um, then eventually you drain that fluid off. Uh, the nice thing about peritoneal dialysis is that you perform that at home, and uh, you have the option of either doing it continuous throughout the day or most commonly people do it essentially overnight when they go to sleep. And it seems to be the least uh, uh, disruptive to your day-to-day routine. Pretty amazing. Whoever figured out if you put a bunch of fluid in your abdomen that it would work like the kidneys. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. Somebody, somebody. pretty smart. <laughs> so do you need a helper to do this or people who live alone can do this? Um, you, you don't need to have a helper for peritoneal dialysis. You um, have to go through a training um, to be able to do that safely and um, um, essentially in a sterile fashion, so clean enough so you're not at risk of developing infection. But um, you, you can do it at home uh, by yourself. Every day? Uh, essentially every day, yeah. Yeah, that gets, that's gotta be 
that's hard. Absolutely. To be honest, regardless of the modality of dialysis, mm-hmm. it's very hard. Whether it's peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis, it can be very taxing on both the patient and their family. So what is hemodialysis? So hemodialysis is when you take the blood out of the patient and put it through a machine called the dialysis machine, and it's the machine's job to essentially take the extra fluid off and clean the blood um, as it goes through a filter and then return it back to the patient. Uh, and with hemodialysis, you need to obviously, because you're taking the blood out of the patient, you do have some type of what we call an access, whether it would be a uh, what's called a fistula, which is a, um, a vein that's enlarged, so you can put needles in there so you can take the blood out of the patient. And um, less commonly, there's a catheter that we can use in more urgent situations where you can take the blood out of the patient and run it through the filter. Um, and we have two um, types of hemodialysis. One is what's called considered in-center, where you go to a center to do your dialysis. And another modality is the home hemodialysis, where you actually do the hemodialysis at home. There's a smaller machine you have, and with that you do it usually, you know, five times a week or so. Uh, but you, yeah, it uh, allows you more flexibility, essentially, where you can do it at home. Really? Uh, I would assume that the, the machine, the home machine, is fairly expensive? So it actually would be um, would be covered. No, well, perfect. I, I like that, huh? <laughs> I know, but the thing about it is, anybody I know who's done dialysis, it just is. It like you said, it it just drains on you. Mm-hmm. And so, if you get to a point where dialysis no longer works, does dialysis take a toll on the kidney as well? So usually when we consider starting the option of dialysis, we're thinking that you're in a point that your kidneys can no longer okay. do the function. Um, now, can you lose some of your residual function as you go on dialysis? That does happen over time. But um, we always think that it just essentially replaces your kidney to do the job of the kidney. So then transplant is your only other option. Yes, and I also want to add that you don't necessarily need to go on dialysis to be able to qualify for transplant. We actually always advocate for what we call preemptive transplant, meaning that before you go on dialysis that you do explore the option of transplant. And in fact, if your kidney function is low enough that you don't need dialysis but meets a certain cutoff, you would be eligible for transplantation. And we do know that the outcomes, uh, patient survival is much better on transplant, so is the quality of life. If uh, Are most of the patients who are on dialysis, are they kidney transplant patients or are a fair number, number of them just too ill to even be considered for a transplant? I would say a fair number of them are too ill to be considered for transplant. Now, there are patients that are eligible for transplant, but they don't have any uh, what we consider living donors, so they're waiting for a, tra- for a kidney to become available for them, and during that time they have to you know, be bridged with, transpla- with um, dialysis to in order to get a uh, call for a kidney transplant. But many of the times they're maybe too ill to be considered for kidney transplant. If you're uh, on the transplant list, Mm -hmm. uh, if you can, you're better off to find a living donor as opposed to a deceased donor, right? Because uh, isn't the success rate a little bit better with a living donor? The success rate is better with the living donor, and also there is no wait time. Usually if you're you're, um, approved for a transplant and so is your donor, usually that can move ahead pretty quickly. The final thing we want to talk about is what we can do for our kidneys to keep them healthy, because none of this sounds very appealing, dialysis or transplant. No, I'm not in favor of any of it. (laughs) You're absolutely right. The best thing to do is to keep your kidneys healthy. And some of the tips I would have, one would be to make sure that your blood pressure is well controlled and have that uh, checked, Uh, making sure that your blood uh, sugar, your blood glucose is also well under control um, and that you do get screened for uh, possibility of diabetes. Keeping your weight um, under control is very important and eating healthy. 
um, would be important. Um, other tips I would have is to, uh, there's a fair amount of use of over-the-counter pain medicine, specifically non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, and those um, can, if used heavily, can be harmful to the kidneys. So we say to be cautious with the use of those medications. Um, smoking, you must. You must yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, uh, avoiding, uh, if you're a smoker, smoking cessation or obviously not picking up the habit of smoking, that would be also very important. Are there any foods that are bad for your kidneys? Now, it was an old wives' tale. When I was growing up, <laughs> my brother, he loved mustard. And my mom said, don't use too much mustard. It's hard on your kidneys. <laughs> not that I know are, of. No. Are there any foods that are, are not good for your kidneys that you know of? Not per se a food group that's not good. I mean, usually the salt is something that we say you, you would want to watch. Um, and obviously foods that are high in fat and whatnot have other risks that, you know, can increase your risk of, you know, uh, hyperlipidemia and uh, vascular disease, but uh, uh, no particular food per se that I can think would be harmful. all the mustard you want. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you've my got, brother. You've yeah. got some ground to make up. Yeah. I, I hope he doesn't have any kidney disease. You know, my mom might have been right. You know, moms are always right. It is National Kidney Month, and March 14th is World Kidney Day. There are 30 million Americans who have kidney disease, and most of them don't know it. So especially if you have one of the risk factors that we talked about, diabetes, high blood pressure, a family history of kidney disease, get screened today. A special thanks to our guest, kidney specialist, Dr. Loudon Zand. Dr. Zand, you were terrific. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about fluoride varnish and pediatric oral health. And later on in the show, how to protect your skin when you're having fun in the sun. And now, with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Athlete's foot is a fungal infection that usually begins between the toes. It commonly occurs in people whose feet have become very sweaty while confined with tight-fitting shoes. It can be treated with over-the-counter antifungal medications, but the infection often recurs, so prescription medications are also available. Now, if you think you might have athlete's foot, listen up. Symptoms include a scaly, red, itchy rash that often begins between the toes. You could also have blisters or ulcers. The moccasin variety of athlete's foot causes chronic dryness and scaling on the soles that extends up the sides of the foot. It can be mistaken for eczema or even dry skin. The infection can affect one or both feet and can spread to your hands, especially if you scratch or pick at the infected parts of your feet. Athlete's foot is caused by the same type of fungus that causes ringworm or jock itch. Although locker rooms and public showers are often blamed for spreading athlete's foot, the environment inside your shoes is probably more important. Athlete's foot is contagious and can be spread by contact with an infected person or from contact with contaminated surfaces such as towels, floors, and shoes. So these tips can help you avoid athlete's foot or ease the symptoms if it occurs. Treat your feet with over-the-counter antifungal creams or a drying powder. Keep your feet dry, especially between your toes. Wear good socks and change them regularly, wear light, well-ventilated shoes, alternate pairs of shoes, and protect your feet in public places. If you have a rash on your foot that doesn't improve after self-treatment or if you have diabetes, see your health care provider, especially if you notice any signs of a possible secondary bacterial infection, such as excessive redness, swelling, drainage, or fever.
And in other news, sticking to a regular exercise schedule isn't easy. After all, there are plenty of potential hindrances: time, boredom, injuries, self-confidence. But these issues don't need to stand in your way. Consider practical strategies for overcoming common barriers to fitness. Number one. If you don't have enough time to exercise, squeeze in short walks throughout the day, or get up earlier. If you think exercise is boring, choose activities you enjoy. You don't have to go to the gym. Vary your routine and join forces. Exercise with friends. Three. If you're self-conscious about how you look, don't get down on yourself. Remind yourself you're improving your cardiovascular health, or focus on how much stronger you feel after a workout. Remember, other people are probably worried about the same thing. Four. If you feel too tired to exercise after work, or think you're not athletic, remember, without exercise, you'll have no energy. It's a cycle. But breaking the cycle with physical activity is one of the best gifts you can give yourself. And over time, exercise can help improve your sleep quality and your energy level. So try a morning dose of exercise, or walk around the office or block at lunchtime. All movement counts. Be sure to talk to your healthcare provider before you start. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McCray. Well, the next time you take your child in for a well-child visit, you may notice something new. Your nurse or provider may take a minute or two to paint a fluoride varnish on their teeth. The well child visit? They would do that. Hmm. Well, we're going to find out. Joining us in studio is pediatrician Dr. Valeria Cristiani. She's in. She is the, in the division of community pediatric and adolescent medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cristiani. Oh, happy to be here. <laughs> so, why is it if you're in for a well child visit that you get some dental work done? Yes, it's very important because we know that. A child's health is actually the overall health, right? The mouth is part of the body, and we know that children that have a good oral health are healthier mm-hmm. overall. And we know that in many communities, including ours, access to dental care for uh, children is a problem. So we know that prevention works the best. So what we're trying to do is to prevent early childhood cavities. And, and how long have you been doing this?、Uh, we've been doing it here at Mayo Clinic since 2014 with, with the pediatric residency program. But what's new is that this past year we started doing it. With the nurses, so nurses now can apply fluoride varnish during well-child visits. Before it was some providers. I thought that most communities have got fluoride in the water, so、uh-huh. we didn't have to worry about that. So why take this additional step? First of all,、uh, water fluoridation is one of the major public health. Accomplishments of our life. So, fluoride in the water is very healthy and supports oral health throughout. So, the the topical fluoride varnish is in addition to the amount of fluoride that you have in the water. That would be more when you drink water and it has fluoride. You just basically your body absorbs that. This is different. That fluoride varnish is a topical treatment.、Uh, so, it's a it's a very good dose of fluoride that goes like right there to your teeth and it creates a Strong enamel, so that the teeth are stronger, and that 
is what prevents the cavities. Do we know how fluoride prevents cavities? I guess you just alluded to it. It, is, mm-hmm. it makes the enamel stronger, and, and how mm-hmm. and why does it do that? So it has to do with the acids and the balance of bacteria and, uh, and sugars and so how they interact. So uh, we know that uh, fluoride varnish is one of the most evidence-based things that we can do during well child checks. And it has been uh, studied, you know, thoroughly throughout the past decades. And it's actually one of the main things that the uh, United States Preventive Task Force recommends as a Category B uh, preventive service. And what about the ADA, the American Dental Association? Yes. Does it endorse it also? Yes, and, and also the American Pediatric Dentist Association. If mm-hmm. you are taking your child to the dentist, are they uh-huh. getting a double dose of fluoride varnish? The answer to that is they don't have to. And okay. so like one of our questions is, uh, do you have a dental home? And if you do have a dental home, then we don't need to apply the varnish. Um, it, it is true that it doesn't really, it doesn't really hurt if you ap- apply the varnish more frequently than what we usually recommend, which is every three months for high-risk children or every six months for uh, low-risk children. But, uh, no, if they had it done at the dentist, we don't have to. So we actually are collaborating with dentists in our community. We want more general dentists to see uh, uh, zero babies to three years of age, and uh, and we would love to have our dentists do that. And unfortunately, it's it's a, you have to work at this uh, access issue in a multifactorial approach. And so we, uh, prov- you know, care teams are part of the solution. Do you use a brush to put it on? Yes. So it's very slick, actually. It's very easy to do. The parent holds the baby or the toddler in their lap, kind of like giving them a hug. And so the, then the knees of the provider are kind of like touching the knees of the parent and the provider kind of <laughs> like holds the, the head of the baby in, in the lap. And then you basically use some gauze to dry the mouth a little bit and then you paint the teeth. Uh, Does it taste okay? Yes, it tastes wonderful. It's uh, bubble gum, and (laughs) it tastes actually really good. Yeah, they're kind of like, "Mm, mmm, mmm. Bubble gum without the sugar? (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) But a lot of children, I know we don't want kids to have cavities, but their teeth fall out, their baby teeth fall out. So why is it so important not to get cavities in baby teeth? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of health consequences that are bad if you have early childhood cavities in baby teeth. So first of all, they hurt. Uh, They can have troubles growing because they cannot feed properly. So we've seen children with failure to thrive or poor growth because of it. They're very fussy. They can cry at night. Uh, If they're older children, then they have school problems. The parents have to take time off from work to go get them treatment. And also the problem is that when a cavity is present, you have to treat it. You cannot just let it go because it gets worse and worse and worse to the point that sometimes kids have to go to the uh, operating room under anesthesia to get these treated. Yes. We we Mm -hmm. don't want that to happen. Nope. Get the Mm -hmm. brush out. (laughs) Yep. What are some other good oral health tips for kids? Parents are the number one advocates and caretakers of oral health, so they should brush their uh, children's teeth twice a day, and they should use 
a fluoridated toothpaste, but uh, if the child is less than three years of age, only a smear, like a grain of rice. And then older than three is pea size, because we want fluoride, but we don't want too much fluoride. Well, it's new, it's intriguing, and it can prevent cavities in young children. Fluoride mm-hmm. varnish applied to the teeth every, what, three to six months. Yes. Our guest has been Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Valeria Cristiani. Thanks <laughs> so much for joining us, Dr. Cristiani. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, much of the country has experienced some really, really cold weather this really winter. Really cold. <laughs> but there is hope. Spring break is just around the corner. And after those long, dark days that we've experienced, most of us can't wait to feel some sun on our skin. Some of us already have. <laughs> <clears throat> well, some, uh, well, some time in the sun might be good for your soul. It is bad for your body. In particular, it's bad for your skin. And here to discuss how to protect ourselves from the sun is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Davis. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Tracy and Tom. It's always my privilege. Thank you. Good to have you. So uh, I've heard you say before, slop it on. Most people don't use enough sunscreen. That's correct. Our studies in dermatology show that the average person puts on about a third of what they should because the volume of sunscreen that is necessary to get the SPF factor that's on the bottle is much more than you would think. Everyone remember that a shot glass will only cover your face, your neck, and the backs of your hands. A shot glass. So that's an ounce? About. And so you really need three ounces total. Well, you're pretty tall, Tom. I think you're going to need more than three (laughs) shot glasses full. It depends on how much clothing you're wearing. But if you think about how much sunscreen that is for how little surface area of your body that covers, it really is a tremendous amount of sunscreen. A regular sunscreen bottle should last you five to six applications max. Yeah. After I heard you say that shot glass... uh, recommendation, I started taking a couple of bottles of sunscreen on vacation instead of just one and coming back with it only half full. Congratulations. Good job. (laughs) Do you like the lotion better than the spray or does it matter? Theoretically, it does not matter because the lotions and the sprays go through the same exact testing mechanisms to get their SPF factor placed on the bottle and to measure their water resistance and things like that. However, the amount of spray you'd have to put on to get that number is probably even more illogical relative to what you would assume. So when I put spray on my family, for example, they feel like they're a car getting repainted and they feel like they've just been schlacked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what most people do is kind of like how you put on uh, fragrance. They just like one little. No, it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. It's really like a liquid coating. And so... Once a dermatologist has applied spray sunscreen to you, you will probably convert back to cream. (laughs) So explain SPF to us. And is it always best to buy the highest SPF available? So SPF stands for sun protective factor or sun protection factor. And it's simply a ratio of the number of minutes that you can stay outside with the product on before your skin shows inflammation relative to the number of minutes you can walk outside without the product on before your skin shows inflammation. So for example, if I walk outdoors and without the product, I get red or inflamed in one minute, but then I put the product on and walk outdoors in the same setting and it takes 30 minutes to become inflamed on my skin, then the ratio is 30 to 1 or an SPF of 30. So is an SPF of 55 mean you could stay out for 55 minutes? It's not a ratio of time. It's simply a ratio of relativity. And so the higher the SPF number, 
the better protective it is for you. Currently, sunscreens are recommended to repeat application every two hours based on their testing or any time that you get wet or sweat. People talk about when they're going on uh, vacation or going on spring break or even in the summertime that they need to get a base tan because they don't want to get burned while they're on spring break or, you know, fill in the blank. That's the wrong way to look at it. There is no such thing, is there? There's no such thing as a healthy tan and there's no such thing as a base tan. So... Tanning is inflammation, is color change as a result of inflammation to the skin. There are two light forms, UVA and UVB. UVA goes deeper into the skin and causes more long-term damage. UVB uh, stays in the top layers of the skin and is what causes immediate tanning. And so anytime your skin tans, that means by definition it has been damaged. So to get a, quote, base tan to then go out and tan further or protect yourself from burning is simply giving yourself a little bit of damage up front instead of all the damage later. A head start on the skin damage. A head start on the skin damage. (laughs) And so what I recommend to patients is... Your skin is sun naive when you go on a sunny vacation if you've been stuck indoors all winter. I recommend that everyone should wear SPF 30 to 50 when they're outdoors, but make sure you start with a 50 to 55 on the first couple of days so that way, since your skin is so sun naive, you don't burn yourself. And then if you can tolerate it um, without tanning, you can back off to SPF 30. But if you're going to have an outdoor sunny vacation, you might as well put on the higher number and protect yourself better. Is there anything higher than 50 or 55, or is that about the maximum? They do make bottles that have an SPF higher than 55. However, it's debatable whether the difference is statistically relevant. Um, but theoretically, you can have an SPF of higher than 55. I don't, also don't think that those really high SPF lotions are comfortable. Well, and from a practical standpoint, oftentimes they're way more expensive. And mm-hmm. so it's better to reapply a 55 than to put on a 100 and pay three times as much money and feel like you're protected better. And so you might slack on reapplying and... Um, risk injury or tanning. One of the things that I think is interesting is we just don't really connect it up in our brains because people will think they put on a spray tan or a self tanner and then they think of that as being protection to getting a sunburn. Correct. Yes, they do. (laughs) They feel that if they've put on some self tanner that they've put a layer on their skin to protect them. But really self tanner is simply a stain. It's simply like if you were an Easter egg and you dip yourself in dye and came out a different color. That's what sunless tanner does is it stains the top dead layers of the skin. And over several days time, the top layers shed. And so the stain sheds off with it. Now, some sunless tanners do come with SPF in them. However, they're not permanent SPF. They would wear off in a couple of hours. And so um, unless you put on the sunless tanner immediately and then walk outdoors, it's not protecting you like a sunscreen. And you like sunless tanners. Though. I, mean, if I people like sunless to, tanners. Yeah. I say there's no sin in wanting to be a different shade than you naturally are. Um, I would suggest that you go shopping around to find a shade that looks good on you and that you feel comfortable with. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with using sunless tanner. It's way safer than using a tanning bed. It's come a long way. It's come a very long way from the <laughs> days of orange. Yeah. So uh, we've heard it said that uh, you get a safer tan or tanning beds are a safer alternative to natural sunlight because it's more controlled. True or false? False. 
So tanning beds are. She just walked, came across the desk at you on that. <laughs> Correct. One. No, tanning. I knew she wasn't a fan. I was just testing. Tanning beds are a sim- are simply concentrated light, and yes, they're controlled, quote unquote, because you can turn them off and on. But it's concentrated light. It's like sitting much much closer to the sun and having all the rays concentrated right at you. So tanning bed exposure for an equal amount of time is more hazardous than sun exposure for the same amount of time. I know you just got out of medical school, so you probably don't have a big yes, I did. Frame I'm, of I'm 21 in my head forever. <laughs> but thank you, Tracy. Have you noticed that patients are moving away from wanting to look tan? It feels to me like people aren't as key on wanting to have a tan look like they used to back in the day. I agree. I think that hopefully in the dermatology community and the public health community, people are starting to turn the tide and understand that a tan. Tan, unnaturally tanned skin is not necessarily healthy and that it's okay to be the shade that you're in. Wear the shade you were given. What about clothing? I see that some labels have got uh, SPF in them. Is it worth buying? Absolutely. I'm a very big fan of sunscreen impregnated clothing. Essentially, clothes can have fibers weaved into them that you're not able to see that can absorb the ultraviolet light. And they get tested in a similar means to sunscreen, where it is a ratio of how much time you can wear that article of clothing before you tan through the clothes versus if you weren't wearing the clothes, how long it would take you to tan. And we we call it UPF or universal protective factor when it is extrapolated to clothes instead of sunscreen, but it's the exact same principle. So theoretically, if you were wearing a UPF t-shirt of 50, it's equivalent to wearing appropriately used sunscreen at an SPF of 50. And what's really nice about the clothes is sunscreen, you have to buy all the time, you have to frequently replace it, you have to worry about it being frozen or boiled if you leave it in your car. Um, and you have to worry about expiration dates. But with regards to UPF clothing, short of putting harsh chemicals on the clothes, the UPF factor is indefinite. And so it might cost a little bit more than a bottle of sunscreen. However, unless you have young kids that are growing quickly, you can use it for several years before you'll notice that it starts to wear. And so I've found from my family personally, it's a lot easier for me to buy them UPF clothes and have them then apply sunscreen to their hands, feet, and face than it is for me to chase them around the pool begging them to put on sunscreen all the time. I think we're ready for spring break. Dermatologist (laughs) Dr. Don Davis, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.